0: Hear now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter, um, verses um, 18 through 25. And Zechariah said to the angel, "'How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years.'" And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And may the Lord bless this reading of His Word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask Him to bring it alive, to illuminate it for us. Heavenly Father, as we continue in this glorious narrative uh, that the historian Luke has so carefully detailed for us, help us to, to, to see the principle behind it. Help us to see this as not just a narrative, not just a story, not just telling us how John the Baptist was born or conceived, but Rather, to, to act as a living parable so that we will see in it a, a message, a principle that you have for us this morning. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most of you know that Kay and I have, for several years now, been aspiring urban farmers. And in fact, sometimes I think I should have been a farmer. Uh, I really enjoy watching things grow. But it was several years back when Kay was recovering from cancer or, or dealing with cancer that, um, that we began to notice how important nutrient-rich food was. and. Unfortunately, a lot of the food you buy at the grocery store is either nutrient-deprived or it has been grown with pesticides or chemicals or hormones or even genetically modified. So I realized that probably the best way to go about that to get that kind of food was to grow it myself. And so I started with a little bitty garden in the backyard and pretty soon it grew and now there's nothing in our backyard except an urban farm. Now, the principle is relatively easy. Um, You take a seed, you put it in good soil, and you nurture it. You love it. You, you, You pay attention to it. You make sure that it is watered when it grows big enough. You transplant it into whatever medium you're going to grow it in. And then, as it grows, you make sure that it's properly watered, that it has plenty of sun, that it is fed regularly with fertilizers, that you protect it from the evils of the society society around it, which consists of bugs and iguanas and little furry critters that come out in the middle of the night and then eat your fruit, and, of course, weeds that grow up and choke those plants. But if you're diligent, if you pay attention and you grow and, 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 and uh, do everything you're supposed to, well, eventually you've got beautiful, uh, nutrient-rich vegetables and, and food that you can put on the table. But... If you come to a time when you can't properly do that, I'm in one of those times right now. It's just been since the pandemic, things have been just so hectic that the garden has just sort of gone to siege. Uh, There are many plants I haven't watered. and they've dried up and a lot of them have died. The other ones I haven't fertilized, and they're anemic and yellow, and the fruit's a little bitty tiny, and it doesn't really taste all that good. And the critters own the farm. I mean, the bugs and the iguanas, of course, it's been like, kind of chilly for the iguanas lately, but as soon as it gets warm, they'll be right back out. And, of course, at night, the little furry critters come out and eat anything they can get their hands on, and weeds are persistent growing up. And so what happens is that where one under one situation you have a beautiful crop and a yield, in this situation you have almost nothing. Now, my intention this morning is not to teach you the finer points of urban farming. My intention is to make a comparison between that and your faith because, you see, you don't create your faith. The Holy Spirit is one who makes the soil and plants the seed. And, and you start out in a relationship with Jesus with a faith that has been granted to you by the mercy of God himself. But you need to nurture and care for and love that faith. It needs to be treated like a plant. You need to make sure that it's properly watered with a, a prayer life. that is properly fertilized with the word of God. And that all of the evils of this society that want to literally suck the spiritual life out of you are considered and that faith is protected from it. Now, if the faith grows, and we're going to see ultimately God's will is going to be done regardless. If the faith grows, then it bears great fruit. But if you neglect it, just like a plant, if you neglect it and you allow it to become old or weak or or anemic or or so wrapped up in the weeds of this world that it's hardly noticeable, I want you to realize something from this morning's message. There are consequences, brothers and sisters, for unbelief. Your faith is not going to do well if it is allowed to be, be intact constantly by the world around you. And, and, and that leads you to problems when the times of testing come, because your faith will fail the test, and there are always consequences for unbelief, and that's what we're going to see in our story of Zechariah this morning. Now, where we left it, if you remember last week, I told you I kind of cut that narrative a little bit unnaturally just because there was too much text. And where we left it, Zechariah the priest is in the holy place of the temple. It is his big day out of all the 18,000 priests in Israel. He has been chosen on that day to burn the incense representing the prayers of the people. And so there he is in the sanctuary by himself and he's probably just put the incense on the coals and all of a sudden boom. Whom the angel Gabriel appears. Had to terrify him under the situation that he was in. But Gabriel assuaged his fear and said, I have great news for you, Zechariah. Now, I know that you're old, and I know that your wife is old, and I know that all through her life she's been barren, and I know that you've been praying for ages for a child, and you've, you've given up on that now, but God is going to grant you a son." For the first time in 400 years, God reveals his plans to his people. God is going to give you a son, and he's not going to be just any son. He is going to be great. He is going to be the Elijah to come. He is going to be the forerunner, the voice in the desert, the one who comes, who identifies the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God. What a great blessing that is, one would think that. Zechariah would fall down on his knees and praise and thanksgiving would come from his mouth. But that's not what happens. He makes a huge blunder. It's skepticism and unbelief that he expresses. And so let's take a look starting in the 18th verse as we see, first of all, Zechariah's absolutely wrong response to the good news the angel has brought him. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, just notice that first part. How shall I know this? He might just as well have said, I'm sorry, I don't believe you. (laughs) Show me. Prove it to me. Give me a sign, because I want to see a sign that proves that what you say is true. Because, actually, people my age and people my wife's age don't have babies in the world that I live in. Now, I want you to notice that... um, Uh, Or at least I want you to remember what Jesus has to say about those who ask for a sign. Remember, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. You see, what the Lord wants out of us, folks, is the same thing he wanted out of Zechariah. Even though Zechariah is an Old Testament saint, really, he's part of the Messianic community, God still wants belief. He still wants faith out of him. And this is the exact opposite of faith. To say, that sounds great, but I don't believe you. And show me a sign. That's not what faith is. Hebrews, of course, puts it this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that is anything but faith. Now here, I just want to kind of pause for a moment. And I want to make a little bit of application as far as the rest of us are concerned. Because this is so relevant to us today. I mean, who among us in his situation wouldn't have maybe just as a knee-jerk reaction? Say, what? I'm, I'm too old to have a child, and my wife's too old to have a child, and she's been barren all these years, so what on earth are you talking about? Now, I'm not telling you that I want you to associate any, any closer than that. I don't want you to sympathize with him. I don't want you to condone what he did. Because it's an egregious sin, and I'm going to point out why it is so egregious. But I don't think it is a sin that any one of us would not commit in the same situation. Now, here's why this is so important to us. Zechariah is us, folks. He is us. Because you see, well, I'm talking to Christians now. I'm talking to true believers. Because Zechariah was blameless, remember? He was righteous. He kept the commandments and the statutes of God. Both he and Elizabeth did. So, in other words, he's redeemed. He's one of the saints of the Old Testament who will also be saved by Jesus' blood. But he also is going to make a terrible and a horrible blunder. And, and that's exactly the way... We are, in our, we still have a fleshly body and a redeemed heart. And we still stumble and we still make blunders. And so Zechariah is so much like us. He goes on to rationalize why he asks the angel. Why he can, he accuses the angel actually of falsehood if you really want to get down to it. And I don't really believe you show me a sign. And the reason is because I'm an old man. And my wife is an old woman, and she's past the age of when women have children. In other words, here's what Zechariah's done. I want you to see, and and Luke is big on this. Luke loves this. He, he, He does this on various occasions. The, the Luke really wants us to see the kingdom of heaven that has come to earth. And so, Zechariah lives in the world just like we do. We are in this sewer. I mean, we're up to here in the sewer that we live in. And it impacts us far greater than any of us have any conception. The things that we say and the things that we think and the things that we do are so often uh, the reaction of one who lives in this world. Zechariah's reality was... Old men and women don't have babies, period. That's where he lived. Now, who's he talking to? Gabriel, who just came from the presence of God. Gabriel comes from a totally different world, okay? We have a collision of two worlds here. Gabriel comes from a place in the presence of God and sees his face where to think that God couldn't open the womb of an older woman to give her a child is absolutely ludicrous. No one would ever think that. No one would ever believe that God couldn't do things or wouldn't do things of that nature. He, after all, made all that there was with the word. So you see, Gabriel comes from a different place, and that's the reason these two are not going to connect. I remind you of another time that Luke does this, probably one of my favorite scenes out of all of the Gospels as far as the resurrection is concerned. It's way away in the 24th chapter. But you remember what happens on resurrection Sunday morning when the women come to the tomb with those spices to anoint a dead body and the angels are sitting there and they look at those spices and they can't believe it and they say, did you really come here to anoint a dead body? (laughs) Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And he told you that. Here it is. Did you not believe him when he said that? Did you not believe the word of God as it came through Jesus Christ? And now hopefully you begin to see a little bit of why this is such an egregious sin for Zechariah. Because Zechariah is not only disbelieving what the angel says, he is disbelieving what God told him to say. So therefore, he's disbelieving God. So let's talk about, let's ask the question, because a lot of people do ask this question. Okay, so so why was this so bad? What was so egregiously sinful? And I just mentioned, there's two different worlds. But also, it's who Zechariah is. Remember, Zechariah is a priest. And of all the people in Israel, he is one of the most privileged as far as revelation and illumination and knowing the word of God. If anyone should not be surprised that God is going to work a miracle, it should have been a priest. Okay. So he should have understood that there was going to be this uh, uh, that 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 he was going to be capable of witnessing a miracle that God would work. But it wasn't just who Zechariah was; it was where he was. Remember where he is. He's the priest chosen to. Put the incense on, the, on the, the altar of incense so that the prayers of the people go up to God. He's in the temple. He's in the holiest place. The holiest place on earth going backwards in that old administration. But over his left shoulder is the menorah burning brightly. Seven candles representing the eternal spirit of God and his presence in that place. Over his right shoulder is the showbread table, 12 loaves of freshly baked bread there, which were actually called the bread of the presence. Because it was in the continual presence of God there in the temple. He's just lit, put the incense on the fire. The smoke goes up to God and God says, That will be a pleasing aroma in my nostrils when I hear your prayers presented that way. And of course he is standing right outside the Holy of Holies. That place where God comes to redeem and to atone for the sins of his people. I mean, he is in the holiest place on earth. If there's any place that you should expect, if an angel appears to you, that you should expect that you can expect a miracle, well, it would be there. And that's the third problem with what Zechariah has done, and that's the fact of who he is talking to. He's not just talking to somebody down the street, somebody who stopped him and said, hey, let me tell you what God just told me. We're talking about an angel and, and if Moses is any indication, we're not given any details about the way Gabriel looked. And it is Gabriel, too. It's not just any angel. It's an archangel. But if Moses was any indication, when he went into the tent of meeting and he was in the presence of the Shekinah, what happened? He came out and his face was beaming like a light bulb, so they had to put a veil over it. Well, imagine how an angel who has just come from the very presence of God, imagine the dazzling light that would have occurred. And we know that fear was upon um, Zechariah. So in other words, he should have known that if someone like that comes from heaven and is obviously an angel, that his word is trustworthy. But I think the main reason... The main reason that this is so sinful for Zechariah is what he actually meant. And I kind of pointed this out before. It's what he actually meant by what he said. In other words, he is so grounded in the world that he doesn't believe that God can or will do that. His answer is an answer of absolute disbelief. And to not believe, we're going to talk about this in just a second, to not believe a credible word that was delivered to you by God is not to believe in God. And that is the primary reason that the angel is going to react the way that he does. So, look in the 19th verse and we'll see Gabriel's response. He says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. If, if we were reading this in the Greek and, and, and we were knowledgeable in Greek, we would have recognized that when Zechariah says, I am an old man, there would have been an emphasis on the I. I I'm an old man. Well, Zechariah, I mean Gabriel, comes back with an emphasis of his own. Well, I am Gabriel, okay? It's an emphasized I. And, and the, the word Gabriel or the name Gabriel means uh, a man of God or actually mighty one of God. Or it could be translated, God is mighty. But it's not the fact that he, of what his name means so much as he is named, we're going to talk a little bit about Gabriel, some more in the, in the after church. But there's only two angels in all of the uh, scripture that, who are named. And one is Gabriel and the other is Michael. And usually when Gabriel appears, he has something of eschatological import to talk about. In other words, something that is going to reveal God's plan of redemption and how it is coming about in the lives of people. And so, therefore, just the very fact that he's Gabriel means something of great significance but he goes on and he says i stand in the presence of god he is the angel who has just come from being in the very presence of god himself now i want to give you a couple of of principles here because what gabriel is actually doing is establishing his credibility Okay, it's hugely important when you start talking about the word of God and how you're going to respond to that word. He is establishing his credibility. So let me give you I'm going to give you two principles here. Let me give you the first one. And that is simply this. The credibility of the word spoken is directly proportionate to the one who's speaking the word. Let me repeat that. The credibility of the word spoken is directly proportionate to the one who is speaking the words so in other words the 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 credibility of the witness becomes absolutely Paramount. You, you know that in a courtroom uh, there's witnesses who are brought all the time by both the uh, prosecuting and the defense attorney. And each attorney would want to establish the credibility of their witness. Well, here she's a doctor, or here or she's a, uh, a psychiatrist, or a forensic expert, or someone who has some kind of true credibility as far as what is going on in that particular case. Um, uh, case and of course it's the other attorney's responsibility to try to destroy, destroy that credibility but what Gabriel is doing is he's creating his credibility he's saying I came from the presence of God I'm not just a guy on the street I am the archangel Gabriel and so therefore you have just told me that you disbelieve the words of an angel the words that God gave the angel Zechariah knew this He realized what the word angel meant. It means messenger. And so he knows that when an angel comes down and he establishes that I am from God and I have a word for, for you from God, he knows that that's the word of God. So let me give you another principle. To not believe in the credible word of God when it is evident that it is the credible word of God. Is not to believe God. Let me, let me just repeat this. I'm, I'm heading somewhere with this. To disbelieve. Or to refuse to believe. A credible word. That is presented as the word of God. From a credible source. And it is. Substantiated. That that word is indeed credible. Is to not believe. God. Okay. And that is the primary problem that we have going here. Now, brothers and sisters, let's kind of stop and do a little bit of an application here. Because we're speaking from a Christian perspective, right? And belief is everything to Christianity. The reason you are here, the reason you call yourself a Christian is because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, now, why do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Who told you? What, what's the certified, what's the substantiating, the authentic source of a credible witness about what you have placed your faith in? You don't have an angel appearing. We don't have Gabriel standing there in all of his glory and all of that um, uh, uh, a reflection of God himself because he just came from the presence of God. All we have is something that is so much greater, something that is so much more credible. Something that is so much more believable. Something that has been attacked for 2,000 years and they have not been able to find a hole in it. The infallible, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary word of God. God breathed. Every single word of this Bible is God breathed. And we have, and if you want to get get a couple of statistics about why we can believe what we believe and why the Bible can be called the infallible, inerrant word of God, stick around to the after church. I'll just share with you a couple of, of statistics that many of you already know. But I can substantiate, I can substantiate that this is a reliable historical document that you have absolutely no reason not to believe. It is a reliable, credible source. And if you, for whatever reason fail to believe and trust and follow a credible source that establishes itself as God's word, then you are failing or refusing or rebelling against God himself. And that's why this is such a serious sin. That's why the angel is going to punish him, which is where we turn our attention uh, now. Oh, by the way, I just want you to see what this last part is. And he says, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Does that ring a bell with anyone? Anybody notice some of the words that are there? Actually, in the Greek, there's some great words that are included there. First one is, I was sent. Okay? Underlying word, apostello, from which we get our word Apostle. And those of you who are visiting don't know what we have done to the word apostello in this church, but we have we have we have made it clear we're not apostles with a capital A. Okay, Jesus called those apostles, and so but we are apostles because the word just means to be sent. We are sent once. We are sent because the word sends us. Jesus in His great commission and elsewhere He sends us. So we're all apostles. Jesus Himself was the great apostle from heaven, and now we see that Gabriel is also an apostler because he was sent with a message and he tells them what that message is Ioangelizo in the Greek it means good news and it is the word that is translated throughout the rest of the New Testament as the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Now, obviously, this is not directly the good news about Jesus. It's good news about his son coming. But his son is going to be the predecessor and the forerunner of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is going to bring the good news. So, in essence, the angel has said, I came here to share you the gospel and you rejected it. And There are serious consequences to that whether you're a believer or whether you're a non... especially for a non-believer because they're eternal. Well, anyway, he goes on and he, uh, he expresses what that's going to be. He says, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Okay, several things that I want you to see. First of all, he says that you will be silent. You won't be able to speak. Now, this is interesting because... In a sense, the punishment matches the transgression. It was a sin of words. Zechariah said some words. Maybe it was knee-jerk, but it revealed what was in his heart. And Jesus made this absolutely clear over and over again. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So what comes out of the mouth reveals what's in the heart. And so therefore, the words of Zechariah reveal that he actually did not believe that God was going to give him a son and so therefore the punishment was you didn't believe my words I'm going to take your words away and so for the time of the of the pregnancy there would be a, a an inability for him to speak at all but then he goes on and he says that uh, he will be unable to speak until the day that these things take place and and, and... I know this isn't going to sound right, but actually I think Zechariah got off a little easy. Uh, you know, He's going to be mute, and we're going to see the consequences of this sin come right off the bat, but to do something that is rebellious and disobedient to God in the middle of his temple in the process of worship can turn out a lot worse than it does for Zechariah. And I'm sure that Nadab and Abihu is on everybody's mind because when when they disobeyed and rebelled against God in the act of worship, what happened? God sent fire out and fried them, burned them right there, immediately took their lives. What happened to Uzzah when he forgot and rebelled against the word of God? Even though he had good intentions, he touched the ark and he immediately died. So in that sense, Zechariah's punishment is not nearly as bad as it could have been. But I want you to see something about how God does this. Notice that at the same time that he says, okay, you're not going to be able to speak, he shows them what the end of that is. He says, "Until all the time comes, until she delivers birth." So it's going to be a nine months uh, a period of time. God tends to do that. I, I could show you a dozen times during the, uh, the the history of redemption where God has passed out a severe judgment, but at the same time He reveals the mercy that is going to bring an end to that judgment the least of which, of course, is not Genesis 3.15, when he levels the curse of the snake and then says that there's going to come a time when I will take that away. Well, that's what he does here. And, and, and what that brings out, and, and actually that's the reason I picked the moment in the word that I did this morning, um, where Psalm 30 says, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So, what this shows me is that this is not merely, it is to a degree, but it is not entirely punitive. It is not just to punish Zechariah, but it is restorative. There is a disciplining, a growing that God is going through here. Hebrews puts it this way For the Lord uh, disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives those whom I love the revelation says I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent so mixed in with the punishment there's sort of an immediate mercy and God tends to do that quite a bit praise God that he does because none of us could stand up under his wrath if it was not um, coupled with his mercy but there's one thing, one more thing. I want you to see in what the angel says there. He ends that sentence by saying, "Which will be fulfilled in their time." Now, that's a that's a, a, a loaded word in Scripture. "Fulfilled" plyro in the Greek underneath it. And if you go back into all the Gospels, especially Matthew and Mark, you will read over and over and over again, "This was done to." fulfill what was said by the prophet Isaiah. To fulfill means to consummate, to complete, to bring to its completion. And so the angel is saying that, okay, Zechariah, you sinned, you're going to be punished. But that is not going to stop God's overarching plan. In other words, Zechariah, I'm not going to kill you. Because I want you to be the father of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist will still be the forerunner of Christ. And Christ will still come and hang on a cross and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. And there he will be the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's all going to happen and your sin isn't going to stop it. But there were consequences for your sin, Zechariah. There are consequences for you. I'm not going to stop my redemptive plan. I am going to fulfill what I came to do and what is part of my eternal decree. But you, Zechariah, because you sinned, you will be punished. And brothers and sisters, that's huge for us because we need to recognize something. God's will for us will be done. Okay? And there's nothing we can do about it. Here, there's there's no sin that you could commit after you have accepted Christ as your Savior because if you have accepted and you've truly been regenerated, then you cannot possibly deny Him because you have a redeemed heart. That doesn't mean you're not going to stumble. That doesn't mean blunders are not going to occur. But what it does mean is God's plan for you will be accomplished, period. And there's nothing you can do to mess it up. Not that you're going to try. I'm not going to say try. Don't test Him. But I'm saying He's going to have His way with you. Because he has a plan for you. And in the meantime, when you blunder, when you mess up, when you sin, when you're disobedient, when you don't believe his word and take him at his word, there are consequences. We'll talk about that just a little bit more as we sort of bring that into um, a personal situation. But let's go ahead and finish this text. We're in the middle of a narrative. I don't want to isolate this text. Let's go ahead and finish it and then we'll talk a little bit about that, that, that point again. Look in the 21st verse. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Now, the scene switches from the conversation between Zechariah and Gabriel on the inside of the building to what's going on the outside of the building. Remember, there's a good crowd, there's a multitude, and they've all gathered probably the afternoon prayers, and they're all there, and they're praying, waiting for Zechariah to go in and come out. The priests are prostrate on the ground praying. Okay, the Talmud, which is sort of uh, a a Jewish set of, this is the way we do things, laws and regulations. The Talmud says that the priest needs to get in and out as fast as he possibly can. And the reason being is he doesn't want to do exactly what Zechariah has just done, which is to make a blunder. And then pay for it. You know, in the old days, what they actually would do, you know that once a year the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and he alone could go in and only once a year? Well, he used to put bells on the bottom of his robe so they could hear him walking around because they all remembered Nadab and Abihu. And if those bells stopped for a long period of time, they're going to pull him out because they know God killed him. Okay, So that's the kind of reverence that they had for the holiness of God. And so when Zechariah doesn't come right back out, they begin to get a little nervous. Look in the 22nd verse. And when he did come out, when he came out, he was unable to speak, exactly as the angel had predicted, unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Now, he comes out and he can't speak, so he begins to make signs so that the people can understand. Now, obviously, it wasn't any kind of formal sign language like we have now. He's pantomiming, trying to explain the fact that he had a, saw an angel and that something happened. So, at least he was able to, to um, express to them that um, he had a vision, that something extraordinary happened there, but he wasn't able to speak. And, and here's what I want you to see. Let's go back and jump into Zechariah's shoes a little bit like we did a couple of weeks ago. Because already the consequences of his unbelief surface. Because as I said, this was one of the greatest once-in-a-lifetime privileges that a priest could ever have, was to be chosen by lot to be the one who burned the incense, to go into the holy place and burn the incense. But the culmination of that, the coup de grace of that, was when he came back out again and he led the benediction. And the benediction that he would lead all the people in is the same benediction that for years here I've been uh, reciting to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was the the crowning end to his great day. And now he couldn't do it. Another priest would have to take that great privilege. And when he returned home, he wouldn't be able to minister as a priest to the people either. So you can see immediately, it's not just the fact that he can't speak. He can't do anything where speaking was necessary. And he was a priest. So he spent a lot of time uh, speaking. Well, anyway, um, he, uh, when the time, I'm, I'm in the 23rd verse now, when the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. So, and also I told you that his order of priest, they would serve for a week at a time, twice a year. And so, for whatever reason, I'm sure he couldn't do anything. He hung around Jerusalem till his time was over, which he was called to do, and then he went home. And the reason that that little detail is important is that Luke is telling us all of this happened after the the scene with the angel. In other words, Zechariah went home. When all of that decision was being made about John the Baptist and all of this was being talked about, the conception had not occurred. It didn't occur until after he went back home again. And sure enough, when he went back home... um, We found out that Elizabeth is pregnant. Verse 24. And these days, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. Now, that phrase that starts it out after these days, that's an arbitrary period of time. It could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months, it could be years. But I'm guessing that it wasn't but days, okay? Because Zechariah knows now that I'm going to be mute until this baby's delivered. So I'm sure he wanted to get the process on as quickly as he could. But what has mystified um, the uh, scholars for actually millennia is what is meant by the end of that sentence um, and, and And she kept herself hidden for five months. Why would Elizabeth hide herself like that? Some people say it was a tradition or a custom, but then it 's not really pointed out elsewhere. Some people think that she might have been ashamed because she was having a child in her old age i don 't I don't really don 't think it 's that complicated you know. I mean, imagine that you're a woman of her age and all of a sudden you've been bearing your whole life. You're well past the age of, of childbearing and all of a sudden you get pregnant. Well, I, I think you kind of would want to let that pregnancy be showing before you told anyone. So she, she hid or she kept herself away from people until the time that she was actually showing. And, and you know something, it could easily just be that she was, she was adding to the drama of this narrative. I mean, this narrative is so full of drama that I wouldn't put it past any one of the people involved with this to to add to that drama. But final verse, verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. A nice little sort of prayer or song that she that she says. And in a way, in another way, John the Baptist's birth is a predecessor pointing to the main event which happens next and of course a much more expansive uh, uh, song by Mary known as the Magnificat. But both of those are reflective of a song written many years before by Hannah when she after barrenness was allowed to have a child. So this is tying this together as Elizabeth sings this song. Well, with all that said, um, let's kind of step back from the text now, if you will. And I I want to evaluate something. And this this I said at the beginning. When we have a narrative like this in Scripture, we, we don't doubt the historicity of it. Um, This really happened because Luke is really a very good historian and he's making sure that all the details that he presents are ones that he has personally affirmed in one way or another. So we can rest assured in the historicity of this, but just because we believe it was an historical occurrence doesn't mean that there's not a principle involved, that God is not revealing something through it. We call those living parables. It's a parable. There's something that is being told to us here because uh, of the way that this comes about. And the principle of the parable is simply this. There are consequences for denying to believe, rebelling against the word of God. Plain and simple. There are consequences for unbelief. And it takes various forms. When a credible witness provides you with a valid Uh, witness about the Word of God and then verifies it for you, there is no excuse in not believing that and there are therefore consequences for that kind of unbelief. Now, once again, as I said earlier, we don't have an angel here. But we do have an angel in a sense because we do have one that reveals and illuminates us to the very word of God. And that is this God-breathed scripture that we turn to every week. And God in this scripture has revealed himself he has given words to his prophets and those who have written it down and these are just as important and just as valid and just as uh uh, um true as if god was here right now in jesus was standing here giving us these words because the words are of great significance now it's kind of two ways that we need to look at this one from the prospect of an unbeliever Someone who scoffs at this. Someone who looks at this and says, guess what? <laughs> oh, people don't have babies. People don't walk on water. You don't part a Red Sea and a whole nation walks through. And, and people don't get raised from the dead. I live in a real world. I live where I am. And, I, and those are the things that I believe. And so, therefore, I completely throw out what that word says. Well, if, if you'd like a little proof... I mean, mean, whether you accept it or not, stick around for the after church because there is, oh, there's so much proof that the Word of God is exactly what it says it is, the infallible, inerrant Word of God. But just assume, even if you don't believe that, just assume that indeed what is said in the Word is indeed the Word of God. What does the Word of God tell you? The unbeliever, the skeptic, the one who doesn't believe. What does the word of God tell you that is of such great significance to you? Well, put it very simply, it's this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, you can't get any simpler or straightforward or more personal than that. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you say, save from what? Save from the wrath of God at your sinfulness. Now, you may not believe that. You may not think that God is holy. But if there is a God at all, He is holy. He's not like you and He's not like me. And even though He's a loving God, He is a just God. And so, therefore, if you sin and every single one of us sin more than we can even imagine against a holy God, you are condemned by your sins. And that is what you are saved from, the wrath of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Paul puts it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Flip side of that is if you don't. There are consequences to your unbelief. There are consequences that are eternal in nature. And you say, well what about all those other religions? They all are valid too, aren't they? Well not if this one is true. Not if this is the word of God. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So either you have to throw the whole book out, or you have to believe in what God just told you. There's no other way. He says it this way in another place. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. That's what God says to you. That's the word that has been brought to you and placed before you. Now, my question to you this morning is how will you respond to the word of God? Will you respond and say, I believe and I repent? Or will you remain a skeptic and say, no, I don't believe, or I'll believe later on, or or whatever a thousand other excuses that you may have to not believe in the word of God are? But let me tell you something, my friend, there are consequences. Hebrews says that it is appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. It's inevitable. It is so real. And if Gabriel were here, he would warn us. Who told you more than anyone else in the Bible to be concerned in the wrath of God to avoid hell? It was Jesus, the very embodiment of the power of God of who God is, God in the flesh. So therefore, if you're wise, if you're prudent, repent and believe the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But I truly believe, switching gears, that this particular story lends itself more to believers Most of you are believers. Most of you have already accepted Christ as your Savior, and you recognize something, that belief is central to what it means to be Christian. The whole reason that you are here, the reason you're listening, the reason that you call yourself a Christian is because your hearts have been regenerated, you've been born again, and you say, I believe for salvation. But you see, that's just the beginning, folks. That's just the very beginning Because belief starts at your redemption. And then you have a plant in the soil that needs to be nurtured and cared for and grow. Because that faith is going to undergo tests and challenges. And you already have seen, I hope, that there are consequences in this world. In the here and now, there are consequences, and they're not yet, for not believing in the word of God. Once again, let me repeat this principle because the principle is, I think, extremely profound. If you reject the credible witness that is presented to you in the Word of God, you reject God. And God has a plan for you. That's the beauty of it. Because... You may have consequences on this earth, but God still has a plan for you. Jeremiah put it this way, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Regardless of your sinfulness, regardless of how much you fall short, regardless of the the disbelief that will come out of your mouth and the punishment that will occur here on earth and the disciplining that might occur, God has a plan for you and it will not be thwarted by your sins. He has a place for you has a home for you he's got a place at his table with your name on it he has a robe set aside of his own righteousness to give you that is set for you and for no one else I'm not saying that there is going to be some kind of retribution here on earth where you lose your salvation what I am saying is that there are consequences for unbelief and so therefore you should believe And you should nurture that belief. Brothers and sisters, belief doesn't just happen on its own. It's like that plant I talked about at the beginning. The Holy Spirit plants you in the good soil and you're all set. But then you get attacked by everything. By drought, by pestilence, by vermin, by weeds. Everything imaginable attacks your little plant of faith. So how are you going to make it grow? How are you going to make it solid and stand? And how are you going to withstand the day of temptation and the day of difficulty? Well, you water it. You water it with the living water of a prayer life that constantly talks to God and refers to to His Word and you spend time with Him in prayer. You fertilize it with the Word of God. That's what it is. Jesus says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fill that soil with good fertilizer so that that plant will grow. Protect it. From the weeds and the evils of the society. Put on the full armor of God. To be prepared for those things. Spend your time in worship. Spend your time in fellowship. Spend your time in the word. Take the sacraments when they are offered. All of these are ways that you make your faith grow. So that in the day of trouble, you've got an anchor, a solid wall to back up against. Brothers and sisters, let me leave you with a really encouraging fact. You're already involved. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're already involved in a process that cannot be altered. Paul says it to us in the 8th chapter of Romans. He says, the one who foreknew you from before the foundations of the world is also the one who predestined you. The one who predestined you will justify you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And those he justifies, he will sanctify. You're in a process of sanctification until your salvation is complete when he glorifies you. You see, that's what it means to me when Zechariah sinned and there's consequences, but John the Baptist is going to be born anyway. And Jesus is going to come anyway because God is not going to stop his plan, his eternal decree because of your blunders. It goes on. So that's your future, folks. Rejoice. Be glad. Believe in what the Lord has told you. Believe in his promises. That's for the, for the believer. That's what is put before you by the word of God. And my question to you this morning is the same as I ask unbelievers. How will you respond? Will you respond by truly believing and seeing your faith grow and becoming the kind of Christian that God has set aside for you? Or will you suffer the consequences of unbelief? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these images. We learn so much through the living parables that you give us. Sometimes the theology gets really thick and we have a hard time applying it. But oh Lord, I can so see Zechariah living in this world like I live in this world, responding from a worldly perspective as I respond from a worldly perspective and then running into a head-on collision with the kingdom of God as I constantly do when I turn to your words. But thank you, dear Lord, that when you, when you correct us, when you discipline us, that it is restorative. You're growing us. You're making our plants stronger so that we can withstand the day of trial. We give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.